across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, live streaming as we all are now, just like Julie Hartley Brewer has been explaining. Uh, you can watch us as well as listen to us. And it is a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. We're raring to go here at the Independent Republic. Not for us the doom and gloom you get everywhere else. Not for us the endless diet of disaster and despair. Not for us the daily update on how bad everything is. Instead, uh, today marks the return of Prime Minister's question so we can look forward to a live punch-up between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer. Believe it or not, I've actually quite missed it. They're still not allowing a full chamber in the House of Commons, but we will bring it to you all as it happens in the company of Talk Radio's political correspondent, Charlotte Ivers. First up, though, we're talking to Matt Vickers, newly elected Tory MP for Stockton South, who was outraged by yesterday's pathetic street party come protest organised by the Ecoplanks Extinction Rebellion. I must say, I have to agree with him. Just a week after having to admit their ludicrous claims about the end of the human race were all lies, the Greenies were joined by Sir Mark Rylands, the actor whose real name is actually Mark Waters, and police arrested 90 of them. We wait to hear whether any of them will be handed £10,000 fines like Piers Corbyn was. But also, these idiots are planning 10 days of this nonsense to bring our cities to a standstill because they need to tell us all about the climate emergency. Who the hell do they think they are? 0344 499 1000. And presumably they're doing it this week because they'll have to go back to school next week. Uh, we're also talking to Sir John Hayes about the latest figures on the illegal migrant crossings. Almost 1,500 people came to our shores in the last month alone. The biggest ever number since it all started. Sir John uh, is heading the Common Sense Group of MPs and peers who have asked the Prime Minister to change the law to make it more difficult for these people to come here, to make it more difficult for them to stay here uh, once they get refused asylum application and to make it easier to deport them back to when they came. We'll also be heading to Scotland where Glasgow has been locked down by Nicola Sturgeon. Stuart Weir and Neil Oliver will bring us the latest from north of the border. Uh, of course you can call us 0344 499 1000 because most of all we want to hear from you. You are the voices of reason and the sensible people out there who know why we are the home of common sense and the only place where you hear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You're listening to me Mike Graham right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is of course Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Coming up a little bit later on, by the way, we will, of course, be uh, letting you in on a plank of the week, which we filmed yesterday afternoon here in News UK's television studios uh, in the company of Russell Quirk, our favourite property consultant, of course, and Esther Kraku, uh, Conservative commentator. And uh, I have to say, it was one of the better planks of the week competitions because there were so many planks to choose from. Now, last night... One of those planks actually started to get into it with me on Twitter. Uh, He's an MP by the name of Neil Coyle. He's a Labour Party MP. Uh, You might remember him as the guy who had to apologise for some tweets he put out uh, calling people who voted for Brexit fat racists. He also, of course, unusually for him, used some very foul language to describe people uh, who he thought didn't agree with him about the European Union. Um, And basically, I had a go at him for spending £17,000 on an office which is less than uh, three miles away from Westminster. His constituency, of course, is Southwark and Bermondsey, which happens to be the constituency that I live in. So technically, not only uh, do I pay his wages as a taxpayer, he's also supposedly representing me in the Democratic Parliament to which he is uh, supposedly attached. Unfortunately, he's a foul-mouthed Labour MP. He's not the only one. Uh, His initial reaction was to tell me, as a journalist, to get lost 
Uh, he's also told me that he's not interested in coming onto the radio show, which I present, on the grounds that he was called a plank in Plank of the Week. Well, when you're in Plank of the Week, that's what you get called. And you were in Plank of the Week, Neil, uh, on account of your rather ridiculous outburst, which you yourself said fell well below uh, your normal high standards. Well, you don't have very high standards because you've already slagged off Boris Johnson. You've sworn about him. You've already slagged off Piers Morgan. You've sworn about him. Although some people did say you might have been right about that. That's not the point. The point is, is that you are an elected individual. Uh, you are paid by the public purse. You have a duty of care uh, to react and to uh, respond to people. People, particularly those people uh, who are in your own constituency, uh, with politeness at all times. Even if you are wound up, it makes no difference. You don't have a special uh, somehow uh, license to swear at people who pay you. You certainly don't have a special license to behave in the way that you do. Quite frankly, you are a disgrace to the Labour Party. You are a disgrace to the mother of all parliaments. And quite frankly, if you wanted to come onto this show, uh, you would now be banned from ever doing so. So, Neil Coyle, you can join the merry throng of Labour MPs uh, who are not welcome on this particular show, either because you have blocked me or because you have been rude. You were offered the opportunity to come on at 10.45 today. You turned it down on the grounds that you couldn't be bothered. Well, let's see. We'll be keeping our eyes on you, Mr Coyle. I'm sure it won't be long before you're in trouble again. Let's talk to Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South, a far more palatable and likeable individual. Matt, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Hopefully I'm less of a plank. Well, listen, I don't know whether you know Neil Coyle, but he's an odious individual. Uh, he was given the opportunity to come and do what you're doing, which is to exchange a few views, some of which we may agree with, some of which we may not. Uh, but he turned us down. If you see him today in Parliament or any other day in Parliament, do give him my very best. Is the term planky or planker? Well, it pla it's, just, it's, just, it's just plank. It's just a noun, just basically. Plank, okay. I don't think he knows enough about the English language, though. He seems to prefer to use more, shall we say, salty epithets about people. But uh, unfortunately for him, he seems to think that calling people who don't agree with him fat racists because they voted to leave the European Union, he seems to think that's uh, Labour Party policy and completely palatable. I don't know what Keir Starmer thinks about it. Shocking, really. Shocking. They think they know better. They do, and that's why they're never going to get back into power. Anyway, nice to see you after uh, the summer recess. I hope you had a good few weeks. Um, yeah. You, you want to talk to me this morning about Extinction Rebellion, though, because I understand you had a little a visit down to their protest yesterday. Oh, yeah. We, we met the, the, the crowd, uh, quite a crowd. I think the, the thing with it is, with all these protests, we, we've got to be on the side of free speech. People have to have the right to pro protest peacefully. Uh, but yesterday we saw over 90 arrests. We yep. saw people arrested for assaulting emergency workers, for obstructing the police, uh, for public order breaches. Today the road's blocked out there. It's chaos. Um, people who are trying to get back to work, do the right thing, earn a living, are disrupted. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic mm. and we've got a crowd of people gathered out there. And it's just very irresponsible. Well, it really um, is. And what did they have to say for themselves? I mean, because they've already had to apologise, haven't they? They made that ridiculous film uh, with Kira Knightley in it where they claimed that uh, basically the world is coming to an end and the actual human race is going to become extinct. And they were told they had to remove those facts from the documentary because they're simply not true. I think you've also, I mean, you've got to think about what you achieve when you protest. So there are people who go out there to protest for something. There are people who protest every week, I think, uh, a lot of people out there were probably out there a few weeks ago protesting about something else. Yeah. Um, but I think when there's genuine protest, we should listen to it. It should be a thing. But I think if, you, if, you, if you're serious about climate change, you want to do something about it, you should actually you should be looking at what yesterday achieved when a lot of people, a lot of largely middle class, middle aged people turned up on the green out there. What did they achieve in terms of tackling climate change? Could they actually, you know, was it Gandhi, I think, who said, be the change you want to see in the world? Yes. Um, there's a lot of better things that those people could have been doing yesterday to tackle climate change. Mm. Um 
from you know my part of the world we've got groups who go out they do their litter picking every week they actually actively go and do something about it right instead of standing out there with a banner whinging about something they don't actually know what they're whinging about or what they want to achieve mm. well um, most of them will have traveled into the capital as well because they don't necessarily live here from parts uh, north south east and west and wh whichever form of transport they used unless they cycled here uh, i suspect they used a quite large carbon footprint as well so it's, it's all very hypocritical isn't it I didn't see any huge uh, cycle parking issues out there yesterday. <laughs> I think we might have seen a lot of people on trains and on the underground. Right. Uh, but I think, I think actually, sort of, they're out there talking about, uh, well, you see the banners. The banners are not about climate change, are they? They're about socialism. They're about all sorts of other things. Actually, the people who are making the difference is there's businesses out there doing real things to tackle climate change. We've got a fantastic company in my part of the world, Ensis. Uh, it's all about bioethanol and fuel. It's about reducing carbon emissions doing innovative things, putting yeah. the money where their mouth is, putting the energy in there, creating jobs uh, and doing something about climate change, actively doing yes. something about it instead of standing there with your banner, uh, whichever banner it might be that you've got this week. And yeah, which, which normally, where you'll normally see at least three of them saying F Boris and F the Tories and, you know, bring bring down capitalism because they're all about anarchy these people they want to yeah. destroy the system it's the same as the people in america who claim to be demonstrating on behalf of black lives matter uh, they're basically saying death to america they're actually chanting death to america i think i mean the other thing we've seen is during the black lives matter thing we saw the talk about defunding the police actually the cost of that yesterday was astronomical yeah 90 arrests hundreds of police officers out on the streets uh marshalling the thing trying to ensure we don't end up with the scenes we saw last time around um it, it just untold the bank holiday weekend um i think the cost of putting police officers on the well additional police officers on the street on a bank holiday weekend from 6 7 in the morning the cost would be unreal we've yeah. got a knife problem uh knife crime problem in london those police could be doing much better things than standing out there uh, surveying middle-class, middle-aged people waving flags. Exactly right. Um, and also, are they not actually promising to do this for the next 10 days? So it's not just a bank holiday weekend jamboree. It's going to, yeah, go, on, I mean, it's going to go on beyond next weekend. We've had warnings about about the, the, the potential for attacks on, on IT and hacking, etc. We've got warnings about our own offices in our constituencies, mm. about the, these protests. But I'd, I'd love to see what they want to achieve with the protest you yeah. know it's like what is the what is the wish list and what do you want to achieve and in fact what are you achieving because they're not achieving very much well, what they, they want to achieve is, is you and i making sure that we can't ever go anywhere by anything that has an engine right so you don't want to fly you don't want to get on a train you don't want to get on a, an, into a car or onto a bus unless it's electric you know they are so unrealistic i'm looking at pictures of the protest now uh, where somebody's holding up a banner saying tell the truth which is pretty ironic considering that what they're most famous for is telling a load of lies yeah yeah, it's 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 a disaster, isn't it? Yeah, it's it a really disaster. is. Complete and utter use, useless. Uh, well, waste of our time and money in terms of police officers who could be doing very serious things, uh, and a waste of their time and probably their train fares as well. Well, here's uh, an idea. How about you hit them all with a ten thousand pound fine, like poor old Piers Corbyn got the other day? Because it seems yeah. to me he's the only guy that's been given one of these fines. <laughs> Well, he's a character in himself, isn't he? Well, he is. Listen, I'm, I'm no great defender of his, but it seems very unfair that he's the only person out of all the people that have been protesting over the past several months to get one of these fines. Yeah, I think you're entirely right, actually. I think we do need to start finding it. But I mean, we should, we should always be on the side of people who want to protest. We're on the side of free speech. But actually, what are you achieving and what, what is it you're protesting about? Um, some of these people are serial protesters. They're out there every week uh, doing very little else. Uh, if, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
agree. Yeah. So, I mean, if you are, I mean, much to my sort of uh, chagrin, I have to say, and disappointment, um, there was, I think, a meeting last year, was there not, uh, organised by Michael Gove with some of the leaders of Extinction Rebellion, which I found extraordinary because these are not people worth talking to. You know, they haven't got an idea in their heads. And the last thing we need is to start co-opting anything that they think as government policy. I think I think there are there are people who buy into Extinction Rebellion, though, as if it is the the movement for uh, against climate change, for a tiny power act on plastics. Uh, and they're, they're genuinely getting involved because of that. But it's, it's like the Black Lives Matter thing. Uh, they get lost in the in the noise of, of other protests and other extinction rebellion is probably just not the way to go. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's all very well to say that they're raising awareness. I don't think there's anybody, unless you've been living under a rock for the last 12 years, doesn't know that there is some kind of, you know, anxiety going on about the climate. And most people, I would say, probably recycle now, uh, when, as opposed to 10 years ago when, when probably most people didn't. You know, we've already had the plastic bag debate. Very few people now use plastic bags, which are throwaway plastic bags from the, from the supermarket. More people than ever are trying to buy food um, which is sourced locally. You know, I don't think there's much more that we could actually do. And as far as the kind of ridiculous mayhem on the streets of London is concerned, caused not just by Extinction Rebellion, but also by Sadiq Khan, uh, who's building more cycle lanes you can shake a stick at, thereby causing more congestion. You know, the pollution in London is actually getting worse rather than better, thanks to the plans that they have to make it greener. Has, has Sadiq Khan ever made it onto the Plank of the Week? Uh, oh, he's on there quite regularly. In fact, he, he used to week. regularly win Plank of the Month back at the beginning of the year. Right. Oh, that's, that, that, yeah, he's that, on there a lot. The ultimate, uh, the ultimate award is Plank of the Month. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're entirely right. I think the, the nature of these protests, if there is anybody who's missed the fact of it, that the world needs to green up a little bit. We need to reduce our plastic emissions, etc., etc. Carbon emissions. It's an agenda that the government is well on board with. It, there's so many things going on. It's unreal. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but, we keep zero, here, but that's exactly right. I mean, we've we've already signed up to this net zero nonsense, right? Which no other country has done. We are one of the yeah. few countries in the world that actually has a green tax on our energy bills. We're also one of the few countries in the world that has a green tax on every flight that we take out of this country. So, I mean, I really don't know what they want that we don't do that we should do. Yeah, you're entirely right, I think. I mean, that is the thing with a lot of these protests. That is the thing with the Black Lives Matter. It's actually what do they want to achieve from the protest that is not being achieved and that is actually possible to achieve. Mm, Exactly right. So, I mean, are you able to make some representation on the behalf of the great and ordinary people of this country uh, in Parliament sometime in the next uh, few weeks, Matt? Because you you have a privileged position uh, in which you can speak about these things inside the Houses of Parliament uh, and get something changed. In, in terms of green, well, in terms of getting these... Uh, well, in terms, of, in terms of stopping this idiotic sort of mass protest and allowing it to go on for as long as it goes on, you know, because most people, I think, would be OK with a protest on a day uh, where they want to protest. They can walk around, they can dance about uh, on Westminster Bridge for a day, they can dance about on, uh, you know, Parliament Square if they want. But 10 days in a row to try and bring the nation's capital city to a standstill is over the top, and I don't think it's uh, in any way uh, should be allowed. Coupled with the fact that it's in the middle of a pandemic and we're, we're doing everything we can to stop uh, crowds gathering. Yeah. It, yeah, it is ridiculous. Mm. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, yeah. I think, I think what we need, here's an idea, is some kind of emergency power to say to them, look, you can protest for 24 hours, but no more. 
and you can't protest for more than 24 hours in any given month. And I think in that, in that case, you would not be uh, accused of trying to silence them. You would say, look, it's perfectly possible for you to protest, but it's unreasonable for you to protest for 10 days out of a month when people are trying to get their businesses back. I think, I think that is entirely right. I think when people are trying to go about their daily business and are disrupted from doing so and trying to get the economy moving uh, and there's the roads clogged out there, the people can't get to work, uh, I think you, you, you're probably spot on. Um, I also think that there's, a, there's an element of how th these people are serial protesters. Yeah. There are some people who just live to protest. Uh, the tents out there and they'll be there every week for a different cause. Oh, and actually that muddies the water for genuine protest. It muddies the water for free speech. And when we try to stand up for the rights of people to go out there and protest about legitimate causes um, and they're just joining a gang of people who... Yeah virtually live on that green, uh, it's, it's, it's not good for free speech and it's not good for protest. It really isn't. And you get these other sort of planks like Sir Mark Rylance. Uh, you know, it's kind of ironic they say, tell the truth. That's not even his real name. He changed his name when he became an actor. So, you know, this is a bloke who goes around sort of, you know, encouraging this kind of mad behaviour. But I'll tell you what's also interesting. It's front page of the Telegraph today, Matt, has got a story saying there's a record number of the young uh, under 25s in this country on benefits. And so the government, yeah, this might work for Extinction Rebellion, uh, is actually launching today a two billion pound employment scheme for school leavers in a national effort to repair the economy. So maybe what you should do is when you've finished your business today is pop down to Extinction Rebellion's march again and tell them all to get a job. <laughs> okay. I'll see how that goes, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't see any harm in it. You know, I mean, they've obviously got plenty of time on their hands and they should be helping to rebuild the economy instead of trying to stifle it and break it down. Very much so. I think, to be honest, that, that scheme that we're talking about is one of the most incredible things to have happened in quite a long time for, mm. for lots of businesses so during the recess i've been at businesses left right and center businesses who were uh, who fought through the pandemic they're raring to go they're ready to get on with it and be part of the recovery uh, and something like that opening the doors for young people giving them an opportunity and letting businesses well giving the businesses a hand up with it i think it's an absolutely fantastic scheme uh, and I can't wait for young people in my patch to benefit from it. Well, this and we'll is get it. out there and we'll see if it can benefit any of that lot as well. Well, this is it. I mean, I think the way out of this particular pandemic and the economic downturn is to spend money. And the more money people have to spend, the better, uh, which is why I'm sure you'll agree with me that uh, Rishi Sunak's plans, which I think he was floating to see whether people liked them or not, uh, to raise taxes, are a pretty bad idea. Because what we don't need is people having less money to spend. We read this stuff in the paper every week about what is and isn't happening. And then we, we find out a couple of weeks later what is it, what, whether it's the truth. And then we make an informed decision on it. But I think actually the amazing work that's gone into uh, keeping this economy intact, keeping jobs uh, in businesses across my constituency, across the country, has been second to none. Mm. Uh, I had Rishi up in my patch the other day. We went down the high street. We were talking to retailers. We were talking to hospitality businesses. Yeah. They, they would have not been there now. Their doors would have been closed. Sure. We spoke to one of the oldest businesses, a retailer in the High Street in Yarm. Uh, can't get over the support that they've had. Yeah. Knows that without it, their jobs wouldn't have been there. We spoke to one of the youngest businesses, a restaurant that opened in September. Um, can't get over it. Loves it. Mm. Uh, and he's going to put his hand in his pocket, I think, and extend the uh, Eat Out to Help Out scheme. I remember when he came up with that, Rishi, and I was a bit like, this is... People, this well, I, mean, yeah, I mean, all the but usual actually, suspects were going on about how ridiculous it was and how crazy it was. And in fact, it was a very clever policy to get people back out there. The only thing I suppose to worry about now is that now it's gone away. Um, will people continue to go out? You see, I think the key to it was a bit more than just giving them half price. Mm. Not, it was about getting them across the line, getting them outside of the house. Yeah. Because everybody was told it was a terrible thing to do. Don't leave your house. Stay in the house. Don't go near anybody. Uh, and then we wanted them to start turbocharging the economy. Well, the only way we got them across the line was to do that. Uh, you couldn't get a table in our part of the world on a Monday or Wednesday. And I think now people have been out. Now people have enjoyed it. Um, they're, they're loving it. Yeah, and in absolutely. fact, that was the biggest, 
the biggest part of the entire pandemic problem was the fact that people were isolated at home. We had elderly people living alone who didn't get to see anybody, uh, gagging to get down the pub, gagging to get to a restaurant, gagging to get into the shops. Uh, we've got them out there and they're going to keep doing it now. Exactly right. Now, you can't deny that, that, that all of those schemes to help out were great, uh, but now we're kind of moving into a second phase. I'm quite looking forward to Prime Minister's questions. We haven't really seen Boris Johnson for a while. Um, I don't know whether you're able to be in the House today because of the social distancing measures, but um, are you looking forward to it? Oh, yeah, of course. It's a good thing to get back in. I was asking questions about my local hospital yesterday. Uh, it's good to, I mean, the recess is actually the best part of the job because you get to go around, you know, I'm here usually Monday to Thursday. Uh, during recess, I got to go around businesses, schools, get out there and see what's actually happening in your patch. And then mm. you can come back here with all the asks, all the things that people want, and you can start asking for them and shaking the tree and seeing what you can get. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's good to be back. Absolutely good stuff. Matt, thanks very much indeed. Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South. Uh, he's as fed up as I am, as everybody else is, with Extinction Rebellion. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very good morning, uh, as we do every Wednesday, to Mr Neil Oliver, uh, a man uh, who I would describe as erudite, uh, a man who uh, we often have a sort of specific point to kick off with. But today we don't really, Neil, but uh, a very good morning to you nonetheless. Hello, Mike. I'm just the ongoing struggle to maintain sanity. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it could be worse. At least you're not in the sort of greater Glasgow area where you'd now be um, outlawed from actually going uh, to visit anybody or having anybody visit you. Uh, yeah, that must be a real, uh, that must be a, a real additional struggle for, uh, I think they're quoting 800,000 people, which is, you know, a huge chunk of the yeah. population in Scotland, really. Uh, people trying to get back to, to normal, kids going back to school. Uh, it, there's plenty going on for people. Uh, and this is just uh, another layer of, of, uh, of pain and, and, and inconvenience. Like you, I was listening to you saying the fact that cases are going up, but, but fewer people seem to be being made ill by yeah. the virus. It has to be explained yeah. by the authorities or, or visibly taken into account uh, just because more and more people are showing that they have within them the virus. If they're not ill, I'm not quite sure what threat they pose to themselves or to the wider community. I mean, there was a time, in the, you know, hundreds of years ago when the common cold was lethal. Yeah. You know, when the, when the Europeans arrived in, in, uh, in South America in the 15th and 16th centuries, you know, the common cold was killing swathes of yeah. population right. of the indigenous that hadn't encountered it. But now, obviously, we regard the common cold as a, as a harmless virus. And I don't know enough about the way in which viruses evolve or how fast they can do it, but is is the virus becoming something that is less dangerous? Mm. Uh, and that simply because you're finding more and more people are testing positive for it, are those people in danger? I don't know. Well, that's but, it. And there are certainly plenty of medical uh, types and plenty of doctors that I speak to on, a, on an almost daily basis who will say exactly that, that, you know, the virus and the sort of the size of its of its of its damage is definitely thinning out rather like and I've had I've used this allegory before, rather like a hurricane that hits the land and sort of weakens as it as it travels across the land and becomes no longer a hurricane. It's almost like it's blown itself out, you know, and I wonder whether that's what's happening here. But you're absolutely I, I, right. So I also feel that there, there has to be uh, an extent to which people's common sense is trusted. Yeah. You, most, many of us, most of us are able to make sensible decisions. Uh, you know, we're, our household is, is uh, three young kids, 17 and down in age. Uh, and, you know, my wife and I are, are 50-ish. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we, we figure that our kids are coming and going from school and, and we feel that's all right. Yeah. Obviously, there's grandparents involved. 
Um, and we're being careful about that. You know, my parents are, are elderly and we would be, and uh, there's, some, there's some underlying health issues there. So we're not, we're not uh, mixing our kids in with my, my parents, for example. Right. And we're capable of making those decisions for ourselves. And I think most people are, and life is for living and people have to be able to get on about their lives uh, and, and people should be allowed to make their own decisions about what they think is safe, mm. what they think is tolerable for, for their own situation, their own health circumstances. Let people, as far as possible, get on with their lives. People sort of 50-ish and down don't seem to be at particular risk from this virus, whether they catch it or not. Uh, and I think that has to be taken into account. Or if the authorities know something else about the virus that they're not telling us, then they, well, they jolly well should tell us yeah. if there's something we don't know that we should know. No, listen, I, I don't I don't think you're absolutely you're wrong at all about that. And I think I think the trouble is um, there is this kind of um, view in, in government, which seems to be about waiting for this all to be eradicated. And only then will we be able to return to normal. But my, my view is, is it will probably never be eradicated. It will probably always be out there somewhere, uh, you know, lurking about like we've got all sorts of different bacteria and all sorts of different viruses doing the rounds at any given time. You know, school, for example, was always a germ factory. I mean, when my kids were, were smaller, and you'll probably remember this as well, in nursery school and stuff like that. I mean, I always remember September and October, you know, everyone in the house was permanently sick in some way, shape or form, either with a tummy bug or with a cold uh, or with something slightly worse, you know, but it was what you got used to. And I think we need to get used to having this thing and, and just getting on with life. Yeah, there's a wider, I think there's a wider insidious creeping fear of death. <laughs> And a, and, a, and a rising and insidious creeping fear of ill health at all. Right. Uh, and, you know, people, we, we've let you say, I mean, we were always used to, you You know that when you when you go to school or when your kids go to nursery or, or whatever, when you're out there, the human race is a, is a petri dish of infection. Right. Um, and, you, and you live and you live with it. And from time to time, people get ill and sometimes seriously ill or worse. Uh, but the human, the human species has thrived and populated the planet by, in the main, being led by those who are not risk averse. No. You know, where would we have be? Where would we be now? Uh, you know, if when the species first evolved in, you know, in Africa, two hundred, three hundred thousand years ago, if all the if all the mothers and fathers had decided to keep everybody in, and not go anywhere, right. and not take the chance, you know, the, the the world is populated by danger. You know, there are lions and tigers and bears out there. Right. There's disease out there. There are challenges and people get hurt and people get ill. But you've got to have the mindset of be, of being prepared to take the chance because life is out there to be seized and lived against the odds. Mm. And I don't see any benefit in developing this mindset where people think if the world isn't 100% safe and sterile, it's not safe to go out. Right. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder where it's come from. Because imagine, I mean, you talked about the Europeans going to South America and discovering the Americas, as it were. Imagine if uh, back in those in those times, people were too frightened to go into a boat because they might fall off the end of the of the world. There were people who thought like that, but they were generally thought to be the pedestrian people, the people who didn't know anything, the people who didn't really have a seek a seeking of knowledge. They didn't want knowledge. They just wanted to stay in their own little neighbourhood because that was where they felt safe. And I feel as if we're sort of evolving backwards now into a kind of people who are frightened of everything and who don't want to walk down the street in case something falls on them. Yeah, we've talked we've talked about this before in in other contexts. 
my, this idea that we have, you know, in the West in particular, it's been pretty safe yeah. for us since the end of the Second World War. In many ways, mm. life has been getting better and better, safer and safer. Technology has come on in, in you know, inconceivable leaps and bounds. M more people are being fed, lifted out of poverty, education, and medication, painkilling. Everything has got better. And I suppose it, it's tempting for, for, for a massive population to imagine that, that life is just safe. Life has been made safe, that we, should, that we live in a world of plenty with multiple computer screens and yeah. television and all the tech and two cars and central heating and you know, no one dies in car crashes and everything is just antiseptically safe. And that's not, that is not really the nature of life. And if we're becoming fearful of everything, and if we're most insidious of all, if we're encouraged, and we have been encouraged to become fearful of each other as filthy, dirty sources of potential contagion, yeah, that, that breeds all sorts of intolerance. You, you know, you once that is embedded, especially in children coming up, that they that they mustn't touch, and that other people are unclean. Mm. You know, come out from among them and be ye separate. Touch not the unclean thing. Right. You know, that's been. That's been with us since you know since 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 for two thousand yeah, years. Yeah, but it's but, it, but it's a very it's a sort of a, it's a it's a kind of embracing of the ignorant, isn't it though? Yeah, yes, we've got to strive. We've got to life. We say to our kids all the time, you know, life is difficult, uh, and you will experience pain and sadness, and you'll lose people. You know, uh, you know, the next generation above you and the grandparents. You know, eventually their time runs out. Life is full of, of pain. Yeah. And, and what you have to do is rise up in the face of that, you know, and uh, and challenge all of that and make yourself happy despite all of the challenges. Right. And and illness and, and disease are just some of the risks that are out there. And we mustn't raise generations of fearful people because that, as you say, is a retrograde backward. Yeah. It's against all of the principles of the species evolving and reaching out reaching out into the solar system and all the rest of it how yeah. are we going to how are we going to maintain the momentum to to reach our potential as a species if we've decided that if we so much as shake hands with one another we'll catch something and get mm. ill and die yeah i mean i had this conversation with matthew side a little while ago around the exam results and the a levels and the fiasco of all of the uh, the marking and all and everything and and you know he agreed with me that you know it's not a bad thing for kids to fail at something. It's not a terrible no. thing for them to, to, to learn from, from their mistakes, you know. And if you try and mollycoddle them all the way through their school system, whereby they pass everything because the, the standards are lower to such an extent because the school wants to have a good-looking, you know, Ofsted report or whatever it is. And basically, um, you know, everybody passes. And so it means nothing in the end. And also they're not prepared to fail, which they will almost certainly do when they start working. Yeah, there's a, there's a line by a French writer whose name I can't remember, but it's, I wear a suit of armour uh, made only of my mistakes. Mm. That is, you know, that's crucial wisdom. Yeah. That it's by messing up, falling over, bothering to get back up again that you that you learn. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the obstacles that you have to overcome that, that, that stretch your muscles, right. that make you try harder and go on and, and ultimately achieve uh, and this, it's, I think it is, it's, a, it's across the same piece. It's trying to give people a false sense that the world can be made safe, permanently happy, no risk, yeah. 
live to be a hundred, have ripped abs and all your own teeth, never get ill, and never see anyone die. Right. And that, that's a that's a, a philosophy that's guaranteed to give people expectations that can only be disappointed. Yeah. But is it maybe <laughs> is it Neil though possibly our own fault for this uh, place that we find ourselves in? Because well, somewhere back down the line, do you remember? Do you remember somewhere back down the line? We, we, we seem to talk about you know helicopter parenting and yeah. wrapping everyone up in cotton wool yes. and bubble wrap. And it, it certainly, it, it did seem, I, it, it happened during the course of my lifetime mm. that I, I was someone who was let loose from a young age to go out into the wider world and right. play and, you know, come home when it got dark. And then I I never, I didn't do that for our children right. because by that time the situation and the climate had somehow changed and we were all determined to keep an eye on children at all times yeah. until they were old enough to drive a car. Right. And I don't know, I don't exactly know when that happened, when we crossed that Rubicon, uh, but it certainly happened between my being a child and, and my becoming an adult and a parent. Yes. So clearly I take my share of responsibility for that because I have inculcated in our children, as we all have, this idea that it's dangerous out mm, there. Right. Uh, and I think m- maybe we have gone too far uh, to, to giving children or uh, our young the idea that the world is too dangerous to go out into. And right. that's... And that, that diminishes people's potential enjoyment of life. Well, it does, and it limits their kind of potential in a way because it gives them. It doesn't give them the impression. I mean, my parents and I've I've mentioned them before. We don't. My, both my sister and I don't really know what it was that they gave us, but they gave both of us the kind of knowledge and confidence to go out and do whatever we wanted. We basically became what we became as a result of having that kind of enthusiasm and that adventure, adventurous spirit. I mean, we both ended up living in America. She still lives there. Um, you know, we didn't think anything of just picking up sticks and moving to a completely different continent. You know, I can't imagine a lot of people doing that now. I think ultimately what you were given there was you were encouraged to take responsibility for yourself. Yes. From the youngest age possible, the assumption was that you would go out where the strangers and the traffic and all the other potential dangers were. Yeah the assumption from your parents was we've given you enough of the basics now go out and and look after yourself and take responsibility for yourself and possibly for each other you know look after your, mm. your wee brother or whatever while you're out there but, but people were trusted yeah uh, to go out take responsibility for their own destiny and if they fell over and hurt themselves well yes that right. happens well exactly because we now live as you say in a very technologically um, well prepared world it's medically uh, as good as it's ever been if there is anything wrong with you you've got more chance of getting better than you've probably ever had but without um, asking any personal questions how are your kids finding it being back at school and how is how is the kind of the the community finding it is it is it getting back to normal do you feel there is there is a, there is to some degree getting back to normal my older two, my 17-year-old daughter and my 14-year-old son, they have, they have slotted back into high school uh, quite easily, I suppose. Uh, and I suppose maybe they've got more of because they were familiar with the school anyway. My youngest son, who's 12, he just started in first year. So it, high school is completely new to him. Mm. Uh, and so added to that, that significant change, which everyone remembers and is always quite a big step, it's, it's complicated by wearing of masks in yes. the corridors yeah. and in common areas, uh, all hand sanitising and the various routines, the one-way system that's in place that they have to move around the school in a particular way without ever doubling back on themselves. And without a doubt, that's visibly putting a, a degree of stress on my youngest uh, that none of the other, neither of the other two ever had. 
And because they're that bit older and more experienced with the school, they're not feeling the impact of it. Uh, but my youngest is certainly quite anxious, yeah. quite uh, visibly stressed by some aspects of, of school life, in addition to having made the leap from primary school to high school. Yeah. Anyway, as you mentioned that the wider community, I think there is there's a desperation, an absolute hunger amongst all of my neighbours around here to get back to normal. You know, people are craving normality mm. like a like a, a dying man in the desert right. who's desperate to reach the oasis and get a drink. That, that, that thirst for, norm, for normality is palpable. Uh, and we're all trying to look on the bright side. Uh, we have been, you know, socialising and mixing again. And, and we have been telling ourselves that we are going to be all right. <laughs> but right. Some, of it's, some of it's wishful thinking because clearly with, the, you know, the Glasgow uh, restrictions being tightened again, the, the authorities have, have awarded themselves the power, absolute power over every aspect of our lives at the moment. Yeah, and that uh, worries and, me slightly know, because because it worries me in, in several ways, but mostly it worries me because it looks as though they're quite enjoying it. And I'm not sure that we want to be governed by people who enjoy putting restrictions on us. It's hardly a surprise. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always slightly suspicious of people who seek power. Yeah. You know, that Billy Connolly line about, you know, the spoken ambition to be a politician should forever buy you from ever being <laughs> right, a yeah. right. uh, People who want power, they want more and more power, mm. I, I suppose. And, and this, this virus, this pandemic has presented people who enjoy telling other people what to do. Yeah. It's, it's up, you know, it's up, it's, it's up the game. Uh, you know, and now, now they've got absolute power. Absolute power over people's lives. Go back into your house, shut right. the door, don't talk to your mother, right. uh, get out of that shop, close that pub. That's a, that's a lethal cocktail of, of uh, power mm. to hand to people that, that by their own declared choice of career yeah. want. Well, exactly, because it's, a, because it's a very short step from that to something a lot more draconian, right? More than yes. it is uh, easy to take a step back and to let go of the reins of power, because now that they've got them, I think they really want to hang on to them. Yes, and once once it, once you get once you get a, a younger generation coming up for whom this is normal, you know, p- people that are just coming of age or just coming into their maturity now, if they come into their maturity in this atmosphere of accepting that you just have to be told every step you're allowed to take, every mm. move you're allowed to make, yeah, it, then it becomes entrenched. You know, over the co- if this goes on for years, the generation coming up will be that bit more accepting of it. And yeah. It will just be a matter of waiting for the more, you know, recidivist elders to die off with their with their highfalutin ideas about personal liberty. Well, right. Open, and the other, the other, the other, and the other worrying aspect of it for me, Neil, is there appear to be people out there who are very unlike you and I, who quite like it, who quite like being told what they can and can't do, because it means they have no responsibility for what they have to do. Yes, I can't. I can't bear being told what to do. No. When that happened to me either, because I was pretty well behaved when I was a child, but once I became adult, I really don't like it. Mm. And we've talked about how I don't like, I don't join things, I don't join clubs because clubs have rules, and I don't join, uh, you know, parties and societies and organisations generally because you automatically accept and adopt a set of of rules and uh, restrictions on how you're to dress or how you're to speak or or whatever. And I I can't be doing with that. So I've always been a bit of a loner. Well, I think so you I, and I, you and I share I, those I, characteristics. I mean, I'll go with Groucho Marx on that one, who said, uh, "I would never want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member." One hundred percent, yes. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I, but I do worry that we are in the minority. People like you and I now, whereas I think in my parents' time, in their generation, it was the other way around. 
well, maybe it's maybe it's a maybe it's a, a symptom. Maybe it's a product of life being too easy. People have it. It's, it is easy to settle into a rut if the rut is is lined with velvet. Mm. You know, if life if life is harder, if people have less, you know, if their homes are less lavishly furnished, if you know, if they don't have cars and, and television and all the all the entertainments and all the technology and all the protections against the vicissitudes of life, right. then you, maybe you do want to to get out there into the world and, and grab more of what you can for yourself. But, you know, if you feed, if you give battery hens uh, good enough conditions, then they'll just settle down and lay eggs for you. Yeah. If you, if you, if you give them the antibiotics that, that keep them alive uh, and you give them just enough room to, to flap their wings without ever actually taking flight, mm. then you, you've got yourself a captive flock and you can, you can pretty much take advantage of them. Uh, so I think to some extent we're living in a, a fur-lined rut. Which yes. is, it just it's seducing people into thinking, well, if I do have to be trapped in my house for 300 days a year, it's not so bad. I can watch the telly and I can watch box sets and I can I can FaceTime Grandma in Australia and people will settle for it mm. because there's there's less for which they are striving. And this and this then takes us to people who want to continue to work from home. And, you know, and I don't mean those people, you know, because many people have worked from home for a long time. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about those people who, until the middle of March, were working in an office, uh, but who now say to me, well, why should I go back to work? I like working from home. Well, of course you like it because you don't have to do anything other than get up out of your bed, you know, wander off to a laptop, make yourself some Weetabix um, and hang about at home all day without travelling anywhere, without meeting anyone. I'm very concerned that that will create a kind of second tier of society of isolationists. Yeah, we do. We do have a response. If we if we believe that we live as a society or or on a smaller scale in communities, then we have a responsibility to one another and an obligation to one another. And it, it, it is part of it that when you go out, if you got if you work in a in a shop or in an office, then you'll you'll go out at lunchtime and you'll you'll glad hand people that you know in the street. You'll go and buy a sandwich or you'll go mm. and sit down at a cafe and have a meal. Uh, you go and buy some things that you need in the shops you're going to take home at night and that means that there's lifeblood circulating through the, the body of society right. but, but if everybody atomizes back into their cubicles into the little battery cages like battery hens where they've been where there's you know food coming past on a little you know uh, trench outside and you've got just enough water and you won't you won't go out and contribute mm. if we are a society you have you have an obligation to contribute to society and that means getting out there and spreading the butter around, buying things, taking advantage of services, having people do things for you, doing things for other people, and that that creates society. Yeah. Without that, we're just a lot of battery hens yeah. living in cages. That's the best description I've heard. Good, uh, good point on which to end as well, Neil. Great to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. Battery hens. That's what actually is going on here. That's what people who say to me, oh, but I don't want to go back to an office. Why would I want to go back into a disease-ridden city, travel on disease-ridden trains? Why would I want to have to go and work in a place with people I don't like? Well, because that's what society is, as Neil says. It's absolutely right. That's exactly what it is. You are all behaving like battery hens. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, we kicked off the show with Matt Vickers talking about Extinction Rebellion uh, and how we stopped them from having 10 days of mayhem, uh, which are going to clog up London streets uh, in a way that we don't need them to be doing uh, as of right now. Uh, but talking about clogging up uh, all sorts of other things, how about those people clogging up uh, the English Channel? 1,500 practically, uh, almost uh, uh, the highest number of all time, crossed the Channel last month. We're going to speak now to Sir John Hayes, Conservative MP for South Holland and the Deepings. Also, uh, the man uh, who wrote a letter to the the Prime Minister uh, on behalf of the Common Sense Group and a group of 42 MPs and six peers urging for changes in the law, urging for things to be made different so that it's more difficult for migrants to come here illegally and claim asylum. So, John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning to you. Sorry, I've got some background noise here, but it's great to be in your independent republic. No, listen, I'm so glad we were able to get a hold of you because we've been trying to get get you on for a while because it's a great letter you've written. I've got it in front of me here to the Prime Minister uh, in which you set out very clearly what the government should be doing and what they could be doing uh, in order to stop this ghastly trade uh, in human traffic. Absolutely. Um, You're right to describe it as such. People are being exploited. There are people traffickers, people smugglers and so on. Uh, they're encouraging people to cross the channel. Uh, they're arriving here, very often not knowing, uh, uh, not knowing what to expect. And uh, we need laws that allow the government to act on this, to uh, reduce the number, to uh, deal with the traffickers and to save lives. Yeah. This is partly about the fact that these people are endangering their own lives in small dinghies on the channel. It's also partly about securing our borders. Yeah. You know, we both did, didn't we, in the referendum, take control, back control of our borders. Yes. And whilst they're porous, we're not taking back control. No, exactly right. And I, and I think a part of the uh, the issue as well is is to try, to try and make it not so much more difficult to get here, but also, in a way, less welcoming when they do get here. And I don't mean by that that we should be, you know, shouting at them and waving things at them as they come off the boats, but that we shouldn't mm. be supplying them uh, with what appears to be, from a very long way away, um, a reasonably cushy lifestyle. Because we were told by somebody um, who has a daughter that works in Sudan that tr- these human traffickers are now going physically to Sudan Dan, to recruit people, giving them phones to come here. Well, the point about that is you have to deal with what, you, what you're describing, which is really the pool factors. Yeah. And the pool factors are that once you get here, quite hard for the government to get, ri- to get rid of you if mm. you're illegal. Yeah. So, of course, where there are, you know, we've always offered a safe haven to people in genuine fear of persecution or worse. Okay? That's, the, that's a, noble, uh, a noble and virtuous thing. But what's happening now is we've got people coming here being encouraged to game the system mm. by dodgy lawyers who are making vexatious claims. And the government really struggles to deal with that without the necessary primary legislation that allows them to kick back uh, and, and deal with the illegality that's at the heart of this. So you're right. Those four factors do need to be addressed. The Home Secretary gets this. Her ministers get it. But we need to get Parliament and government to back her 
in getting that legislation on the statute book that allows us to deal with illegal immigration. Yes, because I think it must be very frustrating for, for Priti Patel. I think we all think and believe that she wants to do something about this. But when you get a plane load of uh, 23 to 25 migrants being deported back to Spain and every single one of them gets to walk off the plane without it taking off because of these lawyers, you can tell there's something wrong. Well, you, there is a whole industry around this. So basically, people are encouraged to make vexatious claims. I mean, there's three or four things. Firstly, bear in mind some of these people have gone through several safe countries. They mm. come from France or Italy or wherever. Um, so, 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 you know, that in itself uh, gives rise to suspicion. But once they get here, they're encouraged to make successive claims. It takes far too long. These things go on for years. And then when, even when they've been found not to have uh, a, a legitimate case for asylum, it's then really hard to deport them. Because as you said, as soon as Pretty Patel tries to take action, some lawyer then gets an injunction to stop her deporting people. So, so look, people believe in that noble principle of offering sanctuary. What they don't believe in is that system being gamed. And actually, right. it, it besmirches that noble intent, doesn't it? When the system is being gamed in a way that allows for those vexatious claims and prevents the government doing what it needs to do. So Pretty is trying to do what's right. We need to get behind her, get the law in place that says, no, this, these are the rules. Uh, this is how it's going to run. I've set those out in the letter, as you kindly said. Uh, this is how it's going to work. It's going to be fair. It's going to be open. It's going to be clear. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, as far as the system goes, when it was kind of invented, if you like, asylum was a very different business. You know, people did come here in desperation. People were fleeing war zones and they had nowhere else to go. But that's clearly not the case now. Well, some people are. I mean, there will always be, as I say, uh, people who are absolutely genuine, who are fleeing all the things you've described. And my goodness, um, you know, if you think of the period before the last war when we gave sanctuary to yeah. Jewish people trying to escape the Nazis, you know, if only we could have given sanctuary to more of them yes. uh, and avoided uh, what, what, what actually occurred. So, so of course, absolutely right that we do that. But this is not about that. This is about people gaming the system. Some of them are economic migrants. Now, look, if you were in uh, another part of the world and you wanted a better life, uh, you, you probably would try to get to a place like Britain. Yeah. But the trouble is, we, we are a small island with a limited capacity to absorb people. And you know, we can't have thousands of people crossing the channel each, uh, each week, uh, each month. And we have had, you know, record numbers, um, more than 4,000 already right. uh, this, this year. We just can't uh, do that relentlessly and endlessly. And the British people don't think that's fair or right. So, yeah, give asylum to those in desperate need, but get the system in a place where it deals with things quickly, fairly, and in a way that the British people will support. And I think that's all possible, can be done, and I know Pretty Patel wants to do it. Yeah, and I mean, how confident are you that something can be done in this Parliament? Because obviously your letter is, as I say, very detailed. Uh, first of all, have you had a reply from Boris Johnson? And two, um, you know, can you get something on the statute books before the end of the year, for example? I'm, we're meeting, the Common Sense Group is meeting uh, a minister later today to talk about that. And, you know, I'm delighted the government have responded and agreed to meet us, which mm. um, we've already had several meetings with, with, with ministers, but we're going uh, we're, we're having a meeting later today to, 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 to look at the letter and to, to see what we can take forward. Right. And we've got a majority in the House, so this is a question of the government prioritising legislation on asylum and migration. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we're very clear in the manifesto that we were going to uh, take back control. That was very much part of what we argued in the referendum and then in the subsequent election we won. So we have a majority. We need to do this. It needs to be fair. Uh, I'm not in any sense saying that asylum as a principle is wrong. I've already made that clear in what I've said to you. But the point is the current system isn't fair and the British people know it's not fair. 
that asylum is being used as a vehicle for illegal immigration. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Well, we're certainly all behind you here at the Home and Common Sense, Sir John, so uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Sir John Hayes, Conservative MP for South Holland and the Deepings, doing some great work in Parliament uh, to try and get the laws changed on asylum. This is what the people want. Uh, this is what the people voted the Tory party in to do, uh, to get a hold of illegal immigration and unchecked immigration. Nobody in this country is against immigration altogether, but certainly illegal immigration, uh, the acts of uh, human trafficking and the, quite frankly, uh, the very cynical way uh, that people are selling tickets, basically, uh, to get into Britain, uh, knowing that you can get put up in a hotel, knowing that you'll get some kind of a home. I mean, this was denied for years by the government, wasn't it? Oh, it's not true to say that councils give out homes to people. Well, it is true. And it is the facts uh, of the case that these people are coming here because they know that that's true. They know that once they've been put up in a hotel for a while, they know that they've got 15 to 20 years of good grace, even if they get their asylum claim rejected. And they probably won't even be deported because they can find a lawyer who will find a loophole who will make sure they can continue to stay. And that is simply wrong. And it is also wrong to have these sanctuary cities where people are allowed, apparently, um, to put migrant people who are coming here illegally, asylum seekers, ahead of ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds in this country. They get jumped over, and that cannot be true, and it cannot be right, and it cannot be happening. But guess what? It is happening. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Coming up very shortly, we are returning uh, to the scene of the crime, as some people would call it, to the House of Commons chamber, of course, which is still very much a socially distanced part of the world. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer versus Boris Johnson, the first Prime Minister's questions of the new parliamentary session. Charlotte Ivers is here with me. We'll be dissecting what it is that they say. should be quite interesting uh, because they haven't been seen really for a while. John Boris has just entered the chamber. And of course, uh, we will be talking about all of the things that uh, he gets asked. He's just about to speak, I think. So let's uh, have a listen. Andrew Bauer. Thank you very much. Uh, three weeks ago today, uh, the community in, in my uh, constituency of West Aberdeenshire and Concordia, I did think the, the entire country was rocked by the events on the railway line just south of Stonehaven, uh, the tragic events in which three men, uh, Brett McCulloch, Chris Stutchbury and Donald Dinney, tragically lost their lives. I'm sure my right honourable friend and indeed the whole House will join me in sending our deepest condolences to the family and friends of those three men today, as well as our thanks and heartfelt gratitude to the incredible men and women of our emergency services and multiple agencies who worked in incredibly difficult conditions to help the survivors from that incident. The interim report is on the desk of the Transport Secretary as we speak, and I know that the full report will take time to run its course, as is only right. But what assurances can my right honourable friend give my constituents that the serious questions that they have will be answered, any recommendations will be implemented, and that the government will do everything it can to prevent an accident like this from ever happening again? Prime Minister. I thank my honourable friend, and I know the whole House will want to join with me in sending our condolences to the family and friends of Brett McCulloch, Donald Dinney, and Christopher Stutchbury. And uh, I would like to join my honourable friend in paying tribute to the extraordinary work of the emergency services and the public for the bravery that they showed. Britain's railways are among the safest in Europe, partly because we take accidents like this so seriously, and therefore we must ensure that we learn the lessons of this tragic event to make sure uh, that no such incident recurs in the future. Now come to the Leader of the Opposition, Keir Starmer. Thank you. Can I join with the Prime Minister on those comments about the tragic events of just a few weeks ago? Mr Speaker, can I also begin by paying tribute to John Hume, who passed away during recess. 
John was a beacon of light in the most troubled of times. He'll be seriously missed. Mr Speaker, let me start today with the exams fiasco. On the day that thousands of young people had their A-level grades downgraded, the Prime Minister said, and I quote him, the exam results are robust. They're good. They're dependable. The Education Secretary said there would absolutely not be a U-turn. A few days later, a U-turn. We learned yesterday that the Education Secretary knew well in advance that there was a problem with the algorithm. So a straight answer to a straight question, please, Prime Minister. When did the Prime Minister first know that there was a problem with the algorithm? Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, perhaps I could begin by uh, congratulating the Right Honourable Gentleman on, on, his, on his birthday uh, and uh, say to him that uh, the, on the exams and uh, the stress that young people have been through over the summer, both the Secretary of State for Education and I uh, understand very well how difficult it has been for them and uh, for their families going through a pandemic at a time when we have not been able, because of that pandemic, in common with most other countries in the world, to stage normal examinations. And uh, as a result of what we learned uh, about the, uh, the, the tests, that the results that had come in, uh, we did institute a change. We did act. The, the students, the pupils of this country, now do have their grades. And I really ask the right honourable gentleman whether he will uh, join me in congratulating uh, those pupils on their hard work and whether he agrees with me that they deserve the grades they've got. Mr Speaker, I've already expressed congratulations to all those students, and I do so again. But I want to go back to my question, which the Prime Minister avoided. And I know why he avoided it. Because he either knew of the problem with the algorithm and did nothing, or he didn't know when he should have. So let me ask again, when did the Prime Minister first know there would be a problem with the algorithm? Uh, Mr Speaker, he knows perfectly well. Ofqual made it absolutely clear uh, time and again that in their view uh, the system that was in place was robust. Ofqual is, as he knows, an independent organisation and, uh, and credit had to be given to, to their views. All summer long, all summer long, Mr Speaker, he's been going around undermining confidence, spreading doubts, and in particular about, about the return to school in safe conditions. And, and it's absolutely true. And today, today is a great day because the, the parents, the pupils the, uh, of this country, the teachers of this country, are overwhelmingly proving him wrong and proving the doubters wrong, Mr Speaker, because they are going back to school in record numbers in spite of all the gloom and dubitation that he tried to spread. And I think it would be a fine thing, Mr Speaker, if today, after three months of refusing to do so, as pupils go back to school, if today, finally, he said that school was safe to go back to. Come on. Keir Starmer. The Prime Minister is just tin-eared and making it up as he goes along. I'm surprised. The, the, Education, Secretary, the Education Secretary stood at that dispatch box yesterday and said and acknowledged that Labour's first priority has been getting children back to school. That's been our first priority. I've said it numerous times in this dispatch box. He knows it very well. He's just playing games. Mr Speaker, and he's fooling nobody. Even his own MPs have run out of patience. The Vice Chair of the 22 Committee, the MP for Broxbourne, has said the Government says one thing on Monday, changes its mind on Tuesday, something different is presented on Wednesday. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
another of his MPs who wisely wants to remain anonymous, perhaps in the chamber today. He or she said, I am speaking for you because this is what was said, it's mess after mess, his own MPs, U-turn after U-turn. It's a fundamental issue of competence. God knows what's going on. There's no grip. His own MPs are right, aren't they? This is a a leader of the opposition who backed uh, remaining in the EU and now is totally silent on the side, now has performed the U-turn. He backed backed and still, and perhaps he still does, Mr Speaker. Uh, This is a a, a leader of the opposition who supported an IRA condoning uh, politician who wanted to get out of NATO and now says absolutely nothing. This is a a, a leader of the opposition who sat on the front bench uh, whilst there was anti-Semitism. I think there are questions being asked. We do need to try and answer the questions that's being put to the Prime Minister. It will be helpful to those who are watching to know the answers. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I think it will be helpful to, to all those who are watching to know. Minister, I think I'll make the decisions today. Come on, Prime Minister. Sorry, well, Mr Speaker, if I, if I may say this, I think it will be helpful to all those who are watching to know that this opposition and this leader of the opposition said absolutely nothing. Uh, to oppose the method of examinations that was proposed, uh, and indeed, uh, and, and indeed, they opposed they opposed the teacher the teacher accreditation system that we eventually uh, came came up with. Is he now saying that those grades aren't right, or is it just Captain Hindsight, Captain Hindsight, leaping on a bandwagon and op- opposing a policy uh, that he supported uh, two weeks ago? Yes, The problem is he's governing in hindsight. That's why he's making so many mistakes. Mr Speaker, before I go on, the Prime Minister said something about the IRA, and I want him to take it back. I worked in Northern Ireland for five years with the police services of Northern Ireland, bringing peace. I prosecuted the Director of Public Prosecution, serious terrorist, for five years, working with the intelligence and security forces and with the police in Northern Ireland. I asked the Prime Minister to have the decency to withdraw that uh, comment. Mr Prime Minister, it's the same, it's the same every time. Pretend the problem doesn't exist, brush away scrutiny, make the wrong decision, then blame somebody else. This has got to change, because the next major decision for the Prime Minister is on the furlough scheme. The jobs of millions of people are at risk. The longer he delays, the more they're at risk. So will he act now, finally get this decision right, and commit to extend the furlough for those sectors and those workers that desperately need it? What we are doing in this, in this government is getting people back to school, getting our pupils back to school in spite of uh, all the doubts that he's tried to sow, and we are getting people back to work. What he wants to do is extend uh, the furlough scheme on which this country has already spent £40 billion. What we would rather do is get people into work through our kickstart scheme, which we are launching today, £2 billion, uh, to spend to support people, young people in particular, to get the jobs that they need. He wants to keep people in, out of work in suspended animation. We want to move this country forward. That's the difference between him and us. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, first Prime Minister's question since uh, before the summer break, and it's not particularly good-natured, Charlotte, is it? It really isn't, is it? I thought both of them actually seemed very, very testy. It's not the usual mm. calm exchange we're used to, and the Speaker as well right. intervening there. Yeah, the Speaker more or less telling Boris Johnson to answer the question, which is interesting. Let's go back to it. ...years in which he supported, he supported a leader of the Labour Party... When the Prime Minister has worked with the security and intelligence forces uh, in prosecuting criminals and, and terrorists, he can lecture me. I asked him, I asked him to do... I asked him 
I asked him to do the decent thing, but doing the decent thing and this Prime Minister don't go together. This has been a wasted summer. The government should have spent it preparing for the autumn and winter. Instead, they've lurched from crisis to crisis, U-turn to U-turn. To correct one error, even two might make sense. But when the government's notched up 12 U-turns and rising, the only conclusion is serial incompetence. That serial incompetence is holding Britain back. Will the Prime Minister take responsibility and finally get a grip? Mr. Speaker, I take full uh, responsibility for everything that has happened under this government uh, throughout my period in office. And actually, what has happened so far is that we have succeeded in turning the tide of this pandemic. And in spite of, in spite of the, uh, the negativity and the constant sniping from the opposition, uh, we are seeing a country that is not only going back to school, but going back to work. Britain is in the lead in developing vaccines. We are in the lead in, uh, in, uh, in finding uh, cures for this disease, in dexamethasone, uh, in finding treatments uh, for this disease. And not only that, Mr Speaker, we are taking this country forward in spite of the extreme difficulties that we face. What I think the, the, the people of, the, of, of this country would appreciate is uh, he and I, the Labour front bench, uh, everybody across this House, coming together and uniting and saying that it is safe for kids to get back to school. And, we, and I must say, Mr Speaker, we still have not heard that, those words from the right honourable gentleman. Will he now say school is safe? I've said it many, so many times, school is safe. My own children have been in school throughout. There's no issue on this. The Prime Minister is seeking to divide instead of... I, I, wrote to him on the, I, I wrote to him on the 18th of May in confidence and in private, offering my support to him to get kids back to school. The only reason they weren't back for the summer was because of his incompetent education secretary. Um, that's a little bit rich, isn't it, coming from Keir Starmer? Because I seem to remember before the recess, he was refusing to say in public that kids should go back to school because he didn't want to upset the teaching union. So he's only saying now uh, that he wrote to him in private. Well, this is a bit of a weird one, because I remember we were here before recess, yeah. and as you say, Boris Johnson asked him Jerry six asked or seven him, times. He asked him five or six yeah. times. But the weird thing is, the next day, I happened to catch Keir Starmer on BBC Newcastle, mm. and they asked him the same question. He yeah. said, yes. He said what he just said there, of course right. it's safe. So it's slightly odd he's willing to say that on local radio, yeah. but not in the House of Commons, when it was very quick and easy to win the political point there. Yeah, very strange. Yeah, but it's still an incredibly testy atmosphere. Let's go back to it. And the frustration and the hurt of those families that he said one thing to camera and another to them. Can I urge the Prime Minister to reconsider, to do the right thing and find time to meet these grieving families? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, if I, if I may say to the right honourable gentleman, it's absolutely typical of him that he should frame it in that way, because uh, when I made that answer, of course I was very happy to meet uh, the families of the, uh, of the breed, and I sympathise deeply with all those who have lost loved ones throughout this, this pandemic, and we all uh, feel their pain and, and their grief. But it, it turns out that this particular group that uh, he refers to are currently in litigation against the government, and I will certainly meet them once that litigation is concluded. Uh, but I may say to him, it would be a better thing, rather than trying to uh, score points in that way, if he joined together with us, and uh, with, with this government, and said not only is school uh, safe, but it is also safe to go back to India. And it, by the way, Mr Speaker, that's the first time in four months he said it. As I'm delighted, I'm delighted to have extracted it from him over this dispatch box. He's never said it to me in the House of Commons. Uh, I hope, Mr. Speaker, I hope, Mr. Speaker, he will also say, he will also say 
that it is safe for the workforce of this country to go back to work in a COVID-secure way. We want to take this country forward. We're not only getting the pandemic under control, with deaths down, with hospital admissions way, way down. We will continue to tackle it with local lockdowns, with our superlative test and trace system, which, by the way, which, by the way, before they, before they sneer, before they mock at it, Mr Speaker, has now conducted more tests than any other country in Europe. And, and he might hail that rather than sneering at this country's achievements. Jones. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, discussions in the joint committee established under the withdrawal agreement will have the most crucial bearing on the future of trade, not only between the UK and the EU, but also within the UK itself. Uh, unless otherwise agreed in that committee, goods passing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will be subject to the full rigour of the European Customs Code and also to the imposition of tariffs. That would be quite unacceptable, so will my right honourable friend commit to do whatever it takes to ensure that it does not happen? Well, that take, that takes you back, doesn't it? I mean, uh, it makes you not miss the questions about Brexit and trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But I'd have to say, um, I don't know about you, Charlotte, but I mean, that was a rather unedifying Prime Minister's questions for me. It wasn't really won by anybody. Uh, it wasn't really any great points made by anybody. It was just a little bit of sort of personal enmity, really. Yeah, that was really, I think, yeah, unedifying is the right yeah. word for that. It was very much Keir Starmer's greatest hits, wasn't it? Mm. What did he know and when, wrote to him a couple of weeks ago, right. all the all the big right. tricks Starmer tries to pull, and then Boris Johnson firing back those questions at Starmer. It basically seemed like they were both phoning it in slightly, yeah, to be really. honest. Yeah. One thing I will note, and I'd be interested to see if you thought the same thing. Mm. It's always a bit reading the runes when you're trying to work this stuff out. Yeah. The Conservative benches were very, very quiet there. Mm. You heard a lot of jeering from the Labour benches, yeah. but not much coming back in support of the Prime Minister no. from the Tory benches. And he wasn't sounding particularly um, uh, on top of things, was he, either? I mean, he was kind of stammering a little bit more than he normally does because I think he's I think he's struggling at the moment to try and get the mood right, perhaps, because, you know, he is under a bit of pressure. He has got his own MPs who are not all incredibly happy with what he's been doing. Um, and he's also really got nothing. I mean, I would have thought he should have made, should he not have made a big thing of this this uh, back-to-work plan or this young person's two billion quid? I mean, he mentioned it in passing, but he didn't make a big thing of it, really. It felt like he was on the defensive. Yeah. He looked like he was trying to attack with his questions for Starmer, but yeah. I just don't think they landed, really. He looked like someone who'd been backed into a corner yeah. and was laughing out. Right, exactly right. Uh, Ian Blackford, good old Ian Blackford's back, let's have a listen to him. Or is his government making the political choice to accept levels of unemployment last seen under Thatcher in the early 1980s? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I, I'm, uh, I'm members of uh, opposite on, on, of all parties seem to want to extend the, the furlough scheme, uh, which has uh, already uh, cost this country £40 billion, kept uh, helps supported 11 million people, but after all, keeps them in suspended animation and prevents them from going to work. What we want to do is get people back to work. Yeah. And, that's why, and that's why I hope he will instead support our Kickstarter scheme to get young people into jobs and support them in those jobs. How much better is that than languishing out of work? Yeah. In Blackford. My goodness, Mr Speaker, languishing out of work. The furlough scheme is there to protect people so they can come back to work when the time is right. Mr Speaker, France, Germany and Ireland have extended their furlough scheme into 2021. Mr Speaker, they have made a moral choice. They are not prepared to punish their people with record levels of unemployment. You know, Mr Speaker, 
people in Scotland are seeing a tale of two governments, while the Tories are cutting follow scheme support. Yesterday, Nicola Sturgeon was announcing new investment to protect jobs, including a youth guarantee. We all know that jobs are under threat if the furlough scheme ends in October. The power to end this threat lies with the Prime Minister. Will he do his duty and extend the furlough scheme, or are we going to return to levels of unemployment last seen under Thatcher with the resultant human misery? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, what we are doing is not only uh, continuing with the furlough scheme, as he knows, until the end of this month, which is by far, by far more generous, by the way, than anything provided in France or, or Germany or Ireland. We're continuing with it, uh, but we will also, uh, after, after that scheme elapses, we will get on uh, with other measures to support people in work. And starting today, there is the Kickstarter scheme to help young people get the jobs that they need. Uh, that is in addition to a £160 billion package that we have spent to support the economy throughout this crisis. This government has put its arms around all the people of this country to support them throughout the crisis. That is what we are doing, and we will now help them to get back into work. See, that's much better, isn't it? I mean, that's far more positive. That's far more the Boris that, that we sort of know, you know, talking about something positive. And also, they have done great things to save people's jobs, and they have given loads of people money. So there's no reason to hide from that. No, I think that's right. That was much more of a classic PMQ's exchange, mm. much more of the usual Boris Johnson. Just remembered as well something earlier on in PMQ's. Yeah. Boris Johnson, once again, backed into a wall, challenges Keir Starmer to congratulate kids on their exam results. Right. Of course, Kit Starmer's going to congratulate right. kids on their exam results. Right. That's such a bizarre thing to challenge him to do. I suppose he was hoping we'd watch and think, oh, if he's having to be asked, then he must have not done he it must yet. Not have done but... it, yeah. And also, he didn't really want to answer the question, which he didn't answer, which he didn't really answer any of the questions about whether he knew and when he knew that the system wasn't going to be working. Although, to be fair, I don't really think that's very important at this point because that's all done and dusted. The head of Ofqual's left. Um, you know, the, the education minister's still there. Um, you know, the, the people, have, the kids have moved on and they're all going back to school. So what's the, you know, what's the point? I suppose. Well, to play devil's advocate on that, Ofqual have got a bit of a challenge on their hands for the next year or so. Yeah. Obviously, they've got to have kids take their exams in autumn for those who didn't get a predicted grade in right. that way. And then, of course, they've got to sort out the exams next year, which is also going to be a nightmare. So I suppose it is quite important that someone holds off call to account and probably yeah. that should be the education secretary or the prime case, minister in that case again to avoid being called captain hindsight it would have been better asking a question about you know what the future holds and what, are you confident that next year it won't be a complete mess because you can play this back you know this time next year when you said it wouldn't be that is true and you know? Keir Starmer does seem to be trying to create hostages to fortune in terms of those type of things and Boris Johnson has realised that and now just is not engaging with the question it's not that he answers and half answers yeah. he just goes off it's, they, it's two men who are barely speaking to each other seems, to be honest it's an interesting relationship isn't it because it seems as though they exchange quite a lot of private uh, mail to each other private letters seem to go backwards and forwards and then when they see each other in the, in the chamber I mean they're certainly not uh, giving the impression of two men that like each other at all in the slightest not at all, or even two men who are having a conversation with each other. They just seem to be completely steamrolling through their own projects. Mm. And when Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn used to do it, do you remember at the end, they always used to both have a big rant about their pet project yes. for the week so they could clip it and put it on social media. And it felt very odd because it wasn't two people having a conversation. Right. It was just two separate And they speeches. really didn't like each other, but but, I've never, but they weren't quite as rancorous as, as these two have been today. Not at all. And also for the rest of the questions, they did, at least Theresa May did answer Jeremy Corbyn's questions 
Whereas with this, I think it's just two completely different narratives that they both got yeah. going on. He just doesn't want to give him any quarter at all. Let's have another listen. ...has established there are 250,000 businesses who currently bank with fintechs and alternative lenders who do not have access to those loans because they cannot get access to the Bank of England's term funding scheme and lenders who do have those loans are not really accepting uh, loan applications from new customers. Would the Prime Minister use his best offices to persuade the Governor of the Bank of England to open up the term funding scheme to those uh, alternative finance uh, uh, organisations or open the doors of other lenders who can provide those schemes, those loans, to other SMEs? Prime Minister. Well, I, I thank my honourable um, friend. He raises an important point. Those uh, as he will know, uh, the rules around access to uh, schemes for alternative uh, finance uh, uh, are not uh, the responsibility of my uh, right honourable friend, the Chancellor, but uh, for, for the Bank of, uh, of England. But I'm sure the Governor will have heard him uh, today. We now come to Owen Thompson. Yeah, uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And over the summer months, many people undertake a range of activities. For some, it's uh, camping, uh, for others, it's festivals and events. In my Midlothian constituency, we've got a number of highly successful employers in audiovisual technology, hospitality and creative industries, none of whom can currently undertake their normal activities. In the face of this, when furlough ends, these companies could face collapse. What should I tell them? That the government are today going to extend the scheme to make sure the industry can get back on its feet? Or has the government completely given up on them? Here, here. Prime Minister. Uh, not at all, Mr. Speaker. This is, we've, we've supported the, uh, the arts uh, uh, industry alone with, I think, about £1.7 billion of, uh, of support. And uh, in Scotland, as I'm sure he never, he never tires of, of saying, uh, the, overall, uh, the overall support for uh, tackling coronavirus has been of the order of about £4 billion. Uh, and we will continue uh, to give support. But we, we happen to think, and I hope it's common ground across the House, we happen to think that it would be better for the UK economy, better for all the people that he rightly cares about, uh, to get back into work, Mr Speaker. James Davies. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Now, one positive among the gloom of the Covid pandemic is that this year's I'm a Celebrity will be filmed not in New South Wales, Australia, but in our own North Wales. Even if I cannot tempt the Prime Minister to take part in a Welsh Tucker trial, would he can commend ITV on its choice of venue and welcome the positive impact this can have on the regional economy. Prime Minister, I, 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 I thank my honourable friend, and he's, he's right to, to draw attention to uh, the, the, the wonderful attractions of, uh, of North Wales, uh, which I know uh, very well myself. Uh, when I tried to get elected there many years ago, uh, uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, but, uh, and I congratulate him on his success, and may it be long repeated. Heading up to Adrian Shots with Neil Gray. Neil Gray. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Earlier this summer, the Treasury floated a story in The Telegraph suggesting a public sector pay freeze to save money. Given so many public sector workers, such as nurses, police, firefighters, teachers and others, have put their lives on the line to fight COVID, Surely this would be an unconscionable betrayal. Will the Prime Minister therefore unequivocally not only rule out a pay freeze, but commit to fully funding a package to ensure they are remunerated to reflect their sacrifices? I, 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 I must say, I, I, I listened carefully to what the Honourable Gentleman said. He seems, to have, he seems to have ignored the fact, Mr Speaker, that we've just had an inflation-busting public sector pay rise and that, uh, and that n nurses alone, as part of the package uh, that we agreed in 2018, have had a 12.5% uh, pay increase uh, since then. Uh, I, I appreciate his sentiments. He's on the right lines, but he should look at what's actually happening. Yeah. 
Angela Richardson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Alexander Dennis has been manufacturing buses in Guildford for over 100 years with exciting new low and zero emission vehicles. I'm sure my right honourable friend will be as saddened as I was to hear that 200 jobs have been made redundant locally. Does he agree with me that the fantastic skills these workers have are vital for, as part of our green recovery? And will he work with me and colleagues to ensure the long-term success of UK bus manufacturing for both domestic and export markets? Prime Minister, well, I, I thank So it's on. been a rather, um, you know, bizarre session for me. I see Nicola Sturgeon's now getting up in the Scottish Parliament just to kind of add insult to injury, really, so that sort of half the, the news media will swivel over to that. Uh, because in Scotland, of course, they've got the lockdown going on. Uh, they've changed their policy on Greece for quarantining. Um, so um, I kind of, you know, I guess in... in uh, in conclusion, we can say that it's it's back with a whimper, really. I was really looking forward to it, and it's kind of disappointed me somehow. Yeah, it wasn't spectacular, was it, at all? No. I think, actually, to be honest, the story probably is up in Scotland today. Yeah. As you say, you've got all these local lockdowns in the Glasgow area, but also Nicola Sturgeon saying that she's going to set out the roadmap to independence right. by the spring, mm. obviously ahead of those crucial Scottish elections yeah. next year. And actually, that's the big issue coming down the tracks, isn't it, for mm. Boris Johnson? There is probably going to have to be a Scottish independence referendum at some point during his five-year term, whether he likes it or not. Well, he's, I mean, he can continue to refuse to give them that, though, can't he? He doesn't have to give it to them. I mean, there's nothing in the, in the statute books that, that, that mean that he has to do it. But, you know, it's always been an interesting one for me because I've always believed that uh, if they did have a second referendum and they did lose it and it stayed uh, with, with the no vote, then basically that would be the end of the SNP, wouldn't it? Well, it's hard to tell, to be honest, because a lot of people would have said that the last referendum would have been the end of them. I suppose it's probably going to be a case of how close it is. Obviously, if it's a big landslide, yeah. they will probably have to drop back a bit. But they still are incredibly electorally successful. Yeah. They've been in power for, what, a decade now and are still absolutely just cleaning up in terms of the opinion well, polling. Well, in terms of the opinion polling, yes, and in terms of their Scottish Parliament sort of lock on, on, on popularity. But, I mean, there's still a lot of people in Scotland who are not in favour of Nicola Sturgeon. An awful lot of people... Um, uh, who voted for Brexit, um, who don't want to vote for the SNP. And some SNP voters vote for Brexit as well. So it's, it's a very confused picture, I think, up there. But I, I, what I, you know what I would do if I was Boris Johnson? I would say, OK, here's, here's what you can do. You can have a referendum, but you can only get independence if you win it by a margin of more than 65. Oh, I really don't think they'd like that. that they would wouldn't be... <laughs> like it, but they couldn't turn it down. They'd still have to go for it, wouldn't they? They might have to, to be honest. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see next year what happens. Because if you speak privately to people who are working on the role of the union in the UK government, they say essentially it's going to be very, very hard to stop the SNP from getting what they want mm. if they get this size of majority that it looks like they're going to get next year. So I would imagine some point probably in the next three, four years, we could expect a referendum. Of course, we just don't know what this country or what Scotland will look like right. at all at that point. So it could go any way. Could be completely closed down. You never know. Charlotte, thank you very much indeed. Charlotte Ivers there with us uh, for what can only be described as a rather mediocre Prime Minister's questions, I would say. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.